Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Um, I guess today is Neil Ryder, Head of Products and Product Development at Identity Mind. Yeah, so how are you, Neil? Go ahead. Doing very well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, tell me, uh, I'm going to ask you about Identity Mind in just a second, um, but tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to work with this company in the first place. Sure. So I've been working at Identity Mind for about four years now, uh, and they brought me in to help lead their crypto practice, uh, specifically building out software uh, related to anti-money laundering, including KYC or Know Your Customer and transaction monitoring uh, for crypto firms, specifically exchanges. Okay. And then how did you end up with Identity Mind? Like, you know, how did your path meander that way? Yeah. So I had actually worked in crypto before uh, my previous company, which was called Booz Allen Hamilton. They're a consulting shop and they have an AML practice uh, that I came from. So it was a kind of a natural fit for me, especially being out here in Silicon Valley. I thought I would go work at a, a small startup that you know, had some fun stuff. So I thought, oh, I'm going to go do Bitcoin. And I was, I think, employee number 12 here. And we've grown since then because as crypto has grown and we're now a little over 50, which is great. And uh, wow. yeah, it's been fun in the meantime. All right. Well, tell me about Identity Mind. What do you guys do there? And uh, you know, tell me about your role there. Perfect. So uh, at Identity Mind, we are a software provider. Um, so we do all the kind of the back-end software, the, the picks and shovels, if you will, of crypto. And so what we're doing is supporting everyone in the space who has issues with risk and regulation. So we're helping exchanges meet the different requirements of various governments, as well as reduce risk from things like fraud. Uh, people never think about fraud in crypto, but if you're selling anything for fiat, the fraud risk is actually very high, and so we help companies there reduce that risk. All right, so yeah, what are some of the fraud risks in crypto that people are not even aware of? You know, What's an example or a couple examples? Yeah, no. Uh, everyone always bashes exchanges, but they have a very tough job. Um, you know, there was a Forbes article recently that mentioned that Coinbase has a fraud rate 20 times what PayPal does. And the reason why is if you can if you can crack an exchange, if you can kind of defeat their systems, you can get money anywhere in the world immediately with no record of you know who you are other than an address, right, a wallet address. So everyone who's smart is trying to go to exchanges and create fake identities, uh, do account takeovers where you're taking over existing credentials to see if they can buy Bitcoin. Because if you're buying with a credit card, what happens is you, you pay with a credit card, you get the Bitcoin, you send those off to a different wallet, then you 
issue a chargeback, which then gets you your money back. So you've essentially mm-hmm. doubled your money. So it's a great way to make money. And you don't have to be in the U.S. to do this. You can be, and most people who do it aren't. Uh, you see a lot of work in this, depending on where the exchange is, but Eastern Europe specifically, is. there's a lot of people from there trying to do this to different exchanges. Hmm. So what's the solution? I mean, in crypto, there's no refunds, really. There's no chargebacks. So no. How is it different there? So what you do is when you're onboarding customers, you have to do it very well. Uh, and so that's one of the things that IdentiMind helps with. Uh, kind of our core technology is that we share metadata across all of our customers. So we work at this point with over 25 different exchanges. And how it works is if you onboard someone. So if you see Neil Ryder for the first time, uh, we will create a digital identity for Neil. Uh, and as well as a reputation. And then as I go to different exchanges, that information will be shared. So I go from one exchange to another. The second exchange can see, oh, this person's been seen before and they were good or they were bad. Um, It tends to be kind of the same people trying the same stuff just at different places. So if we can help them, that prevents a lot of bad stuff from occurring. Well, how do you onboard someone well versus not well? What's, you know, contrast the two examples. What are some companies doing you know, who's doing it the right way, who's doing it the wrong way, and how? Yeah. Um, so there's there's different ways to do it. And regulations dictate, uh, the KYC regulations in the U.S., especially for crypto, dictate that you have to do something. Basically, um, they want you to have a risk-based approach. But the wrong way would be collecting something like name and address, um, email, phone, and not necessarily validating it so that just because someone has that information doesn't mean they are the the person behind the the computer. Uh, if you want someone who does it the right way, I would look at uh, PayWord has a few different, uh, it's a holding company, but they've got Kraken underneath it and Kraken Direct. And Kraken Direct is a, someone we know very well, and they do a great job of really validating that the person is who they say they are and that the risk they, they present to the exchange is minimal. Um, and the... Yeah, how do you do that? I mean, you know what I mean? They, you know, if you can't say it's okay, I don't know if this is like proprietary, but you know, so I go register with ABC Exchange. I put in my credentials, all my stuff. Is it just a matter of me showing my license or me holding up a picture of it? You know, how do you really verify it's me? And how do I, you know, how do I show my risk profile? What makes me more risky than not? Right, and that's you. That's the really tough question: is how do you validate that someone is who they say they are? Both from a regulatory perspective, it's something you have to do. Regulators will come in and ask you. And from a risk perspective, it's what helps you prevent bad people from coming to your site. So what you have is typically a tiered or staged approach where you do different levels of KYC based on the risk profile of your customers. So risk profile, if you're doing it well, contains a lot of different things. You can get very granular. So what that means is you can look at dollar amount. Um, You can look at have you seen this person before. You can look at geography and where they're coming from. You can look at, you know, the device they're using. Uh, you can look at their email address and see, you know, what domain it's with and what the fraud rate is from that domain. Um, you can look at not just IP address, but also are they using a proxy, an open one, or is it a known bad one? You know, are they using a VPN? And then looking at the device itself, uh, so are they using an emulator? Are they, you know, is there a time zone mismatch between when they, what their device says and what the browser says? So what you do is you look at all of these factors, uh, kind of in combination from the back end. Because the last thing you want to do is, is scare your customers away, right? You want a good onboarding process. It's just hard because the risk is so high. So you'd kind of do all this stuff in the background so that the customer doesn't know. 
And then for those customers who present higher risk, you have them do additional KYC uh, or enhanced due diligence to make sure that they are who they say they are. So one of the things you've said and that a lot of exchanges do is something like document validation. That was the first step. The problem is documents can be faked. So then it was document validation with a selfie. And that's what we're seeing more of now so that, you know, what you want is a system that automatically looks at the selfie, looks at the picture in the document, compares the two and says, yes, that is the same person or no, they're different people, um, as well as doing things like a liveness test. Are you familiar with liveness tests? A liveness? Like, are you alive or what is it? Yeah. So it's it's exactly that. So they'll make you, they'll make you blink. They'll make you turn your head slightly, you know, doing different things to make sure that the, the selfie you take is not a still image, but is actually a live human being. Because if you can confirm oh. that it's a live human being and their selfie matches the picture in the document and the document is valid, then you have a very strong case if someone wants to do a chargeback and says, that wasn't me, you can you can go to, back to the issuing company and say, look, it is them. Here's their information. They provided this. You have a much stronger case than just telling the company that I think it was them. How come banks don't do this? You know, it seems like the exchanges are way ahead and avant-garde with this kind of stuff, and banks are still antiquated. Right. It's it's the risk profile as well as the technology. So banks are, even unless it's a digital-only bank that's been founded in the last few years, banks have some of the oldest and slowest tech. Uh, they're ahead of the government, but really no one else. And so to do this, it's very hard. Um, every bank knows where they want to go. So we work with banks as well as other financial institutions outside of crypto, and everyone wants an online-only onboarding process it's easy for their customers but it's hard their regulators uh, have to approve it uh, banks are very heavily regulated in the u.s and so they have to get approval beforehand and you have to have systems that support this and they don't um, but also the risk of setting up a bank account is you know you can do some malfeasance there but the risk you're not necessarily going to take money from the bank right um, the only money you'd have access to at a bank is your own um, while at a crypto exchange, what you're doing is is having access to potentially a lot of money very quickly that's not yours. So that's hmm. the risk at, at exchanges is actually much higher. So they have to be at the forefront of this. They have to be doing kind of all of this stuff. Um, and even then, their fraud rate is higher than others because everyone knows that's that's where you go if you want to get money quickly anywhere in the world. So the latest and greatest is I have a picture of my ID. Um, I take a selfie with it, and then I also turn on the camera, and you see me, like, saying, hello, my name is so-and-so, this is my ID, and all that. And that's the best that's out there right now? Or is there that's, levels above that? Right now, that's the, I would say that's the most robust. But again, the hard part is you don't probably want every customer to do that because it's a lot of friction, right? So the real clever exchange that we're seeing they're doing is, is figuring out, based on a whole bunch of risk profiles and, you know, what they're seeing initially from the customer, you know, how much of this are you doing? Because you don't want to have every customer do that. It's painful for them. It costs money for the exchange. So it's what you want to do is kind of the just enough model that you get just enough information to feel comfortable. Well, I noticed that the exchanges have a tiered verification approach. You know, my limit is uh, $2,000 a day, and I just have to show my ID. And then if I want to go to 10000 a day, I need to do a selfie and a video. And then 25000 a day, I need to do like a live Skype with a representative. And, you know, that's what I've seen so far. Is that what you've seen or are there any other steps beyond that? So right there, that's a, that's where we are. And I think it's a solid system, right? And it's it makes sense uh, for exchanges to do it this way because it limits their risk. 
uh, again, everyone's trying to defraud them. They have huge regulatory risks. They have a lot of headaches. So rather than making sure you know, everyone goes through the most robust process, what they're doing is based on the customer's risk profile, having them do a, a tiered approach. Um, and we're seeing most exchanges do that. Not all, but definitely most. Well, without helping people commit fraud, what can you say about the uh, risk profiling? How does it work? Right. So the risk profiling is a, it's a really interesting way. It's, you know, how do you, how do you onboard new customers and do it in a smart way? So there is a lot of services you can use kind of on the back end in real time to make sure that someone is who they say they are, to make sure that their risk is low. Um, and we couple that obviously with these digital identities that we build. So, you know, have we seen this person before and any of our clients? And if so, were they good or bad? All this kind of information you you amalgamate together, you weigh it out because certain things are riskier than others, and you provide essentially a risk score of every customer. Um, every established exchange is is doing something like this uh, because they've been you know targeted for fraud since they began, and so you get very good at this kind of figuring out who's bad, figuring out who's good. They will often err on the side of caution just because while it's upsetting to lose a customer. If someone's going to commit a fraud and cost them, say, $10,000, that's a significant amount of resources when you're making only a few percentage on the markup on selling or buying Bitcoin. So um, I'm sure the airports have the same problem and, you know, other institutions have the same problem. You know, are certain countries on a blacklist or, you know, or a, a list where it's higher risk? You know, you said maybe Eastern Europe. Um, is there other factors like age or, you know, I'll give you another example. So, like, a friend of mine worked for Chase Bank. And she said that, you know, like people of a certain ethnicity were coming in, opening up an account and saying they're students, and then they'd have like 300,000 wired into their account in a week, and then they withdraw it. So Chase got wind of this and started closing down those accounts and just saying no to those kind of people or limiting their deposits and withdrawals, you know. So any any other insight you can give into like what the exchanges have to do to mitigate risk or profile people? Yeah, I I, I must say I have not heard of exchanges profiling people based on race. Um, but one of the things they have, it, uh, they definitely profile is age, right? Um, because then you've got a you've got a big concern of friendly fraud or account takeover, where essentially I have stolen, you know, my parents, my grandparents' identification, and all the information I insert is correct. Um, but you know, it's it's sometimes questionable of why someone who's over the age of 75 is buying crypto. This was especially true a few years ago. Now you could make an argument that it's you know it's more mainstream and everyone wants to get involved with it because it's so interesting. And um, but age is definitely a factor, right? So if you look at the the average age of crypto buyers, um, and it depends here if you look at you know amount or number of transactions. But the the data skews very young, and the chargeback or fraud rate either through a credit card or through an ACH wire um, will show that. The the older the people who are over 75 are overrepresented, um, both because there's not a lot of buyers there, and the buyers there there is a lot of fraud. Um, so it's always good to ask questions of you know, does, does this make sense for someone that age to be buying this? Um, and it it could very well be, but it could also be a higher risk. So those things are really important to know. And I guess you know if uh, the account has a level of activity, if it has a low level of activity, and all of a sudden it spikes. And tons of money comes in or goes out. That that would be another sign. Um, you know, I guess there's a lot of things that can be picked up on. You know, if a person accesses accesses the account from different IPs, all of a sudden instead of one IP, you know, those kinds of things. But one thing yes. I think that would help. I don't know if the exchanges can do it. Is their customer service is terrible? It's god awful. You know, 
if they would somehow staff up, I mean, and be able to communicate with customers faster, I think they would reduce their fraud quite a bit because, you know, like uh, I've been on various exchanges and I won't say who, but uh, I mean, it would be weeks before they answer you and it's just terrible. You know, you can't call them, you can't do anything. I think they're just, they're hurting themselves by doing that. Right. And we, we've seen that too, right? We're, and it, But now look at this from an exchange perspective, right? So every customer service representative they have will, you know, it, it's resources, both in expenditure of salary and space, right? You need to house this person, put them in an office, somewhere, get a computer and all that other stuff. Um, and the revenue they bring in, uh, always the knock-on compliance is it is a cost center, which means it costs you money to do this stuff as opposed to earning you money. Now, you, there's obviously the case that, well, if you treat people well, respond to their inquiries and such, they will not leave as a customer. Um, but it's actually just kind of hardcore math, or not even hardcore, but you know, just math of how much is it worth it for an exchange to do that. And the reason why you don't see exchanges do that necessarily is it's not worth it. Now, that may leave an opening for exchange to hire a lot of people have good customer support and then bill itself as, you know, the friendly exchange. Um, someone who did that previously, I think fairly well, was a company called Circle out of Boston. They had a staff um, who you could call, get a hold of. They would always tell you if they were available, if they were taking a day off, it had an active Twitter feed. Um, but they've pivoted out of the space and you see others not really rushing to take that position in the market, maybe because it's financially not worth it to them. Well, it's too bad. I hope the situation improves on both sides because I think it would, you know, everyone would be happier that way. But you know, there's only so much you can do. Right. So, um, what else? What other services do you guys provide? You have this identity verification service. You know, what else in the AML KYC world uh, do you guys help with? Yeah. Uh, so obviously the onboarding KYC. One of the things you mentioned was you know money coming in and out and being suspicious. That's uh, known as transaction monitoring. So if you're a Bitcoin exchange. Um, in the U.S., you have to follow the four pillars of AML, and what that means is you need to have a transaction monitoring platform, which means you need to know if something suspicious is going on. And the only way you can know if something is suspicious is by kind of monitoring the transactions and having rules that fire or having machine learning that says this is an anomaly. So this is something suspicious. You need to investigate. You maybe need to file a suspicious activity report or SAR with the U.S. government. Um, and you need to tell them because what's going on is suspicious and needs to be investigated. So we see a lot of our clients using us for both the onboarding and transaction monitoring in the in the kind of the exchange space. And by exchanges, it's not just exchanges, it's also Bitcoin teller machines or BTMs. Uh, we're also supporting people using Bitcoin or any crypto as a as a rail for remittance. And one of the areas we've kind of grown into in the last few months is ICOs because a lot of our clients who are exchanges are now doing ICOs and we're supporting them with the compliance there. Well, what's the compliance like on the on the ICO side? I'm sure it's <laughs> fraud. I don't even know what the fraud level is, but yeah, so ICOs are different, um, but you still there's still compliance stuff. So the fraud is less because typically you're asking for Ethereum, uh, sometimes Bitcoin, but some people are accepting fiat too. In which case, the concern is if I can buy your tokens with a credit card, get them move them to an either wallet and then do a chargeback. I've got your tokens and I've got the money back originally. So there's there's mm-hmm. a risk there if you're touching fiat. But also compliance in ICOs is, is it's tricky and it's changing every day. So you have to ignoring the whole question is, you know, are you a security or are you not per the Howey test or the Pacific Coin test in Canada? 
there's a question of, you know, who, how are you screening your customers? Um, so are you doing sanction screening? You know, what are you doing to validate they kind of are who they say they are? Um, certain countries like Canada has very prescriptive, prescriptive regulations that say you must do A or B. So you must do one of these things if you're going to have customers from our country. And others like the U.S. are looser, but they are still there. The U.S. is more of a policy of do what you think is best and we'll tell you if you are right afterwards. Um, so that's why you see with large kind of large ICOs, they're doing this validation of customers. They want to make sure that people are who they say they are. They want to make sure that people aren't in a restricted area. For example, there's certain countries you can't do business with. So we help our, our ICO clients block people from certain countries. Um, and you would think, well, you don't you want all the contributors you can get, but it's illegal for companies, say, in the U.S. to work with someone who's coming in from Cuba, uh, coming in from Syria. I don't know if we've, I don't think we've seen anyone from North Korea, but we have seen people from Iran trying to buy into ICOs, which makes sense. The younger population is very technologically savvy. Um, however, as a any kind of U.S. company, you cannot do business with anyone in Iran. So you have to block those people right off the bat. And if you don't and they you know, purchase your coins, you are then liable and something you don't want. Because um, the last thing you want to do when you're trying to build out technology is have to deal with the U.S. government. Where does the liability end, by the way? Let's say I can't sell to people from Iran and one spoofs their IP and they do it. Is it my responsibility or no? Oh, totally so. That's why you should be blocking them. You should be looking at their IP, you know, seeing they're using a proxy, seeing whether you're using a VPN, and typically they are, um, because even if they try to obfuscate this, and even if they do it successfully, at the end of the day, you are responsible. Well, how could you be responsible if they've defrauded you into, uh, you know, letting you, I mean, how could you be responsible if someone obfuscates what they do and you can't figure it out? Uh, you are still responsible for the U.S. government. The, the regulations are actually very clear that even if they're hiding it, it's your responsibility to know. I mean, so what do you do in the face of that? How can anyone raise money without being in fear of, uh, you know, that so you ridiculous it, regulation? Yeah, so you you do it smartly, right? So what you do is you ask for people's name and address, um, then physical address, then you look at their IP address, you see if it's kind of similar or, you know, in the same country at least, and then you look at someone, you know, are they using VPN? Are they using Tor? Are they using a proxy? Um, and if so, you you have them sign in without those things to make sure that, you know, they're not hiding their address. Um, so it's actually not that hard to do. And one of the things we kind of are just coming out with now is a plugin for people having an ICO. Um, it's a kind of a know your customer onboarding plugin. It's a few lines of, of JavaScript. You put it on your site and it kind of collects all the information from people coming in. It validates them against the different regulations all over the world. Because um, obviously, the U.S. has regulations, but so does Canada, and they're different. South Korea has regulations. China has regulations. You know, all these countries are bringing the regulations on board. So what we do is we validate the customer per the regulation of the where the ICO is headquartered and where the customer is coming from to make sure that everything is on the up and up. Um, putting those people who are con- trying to contribute but who are riskier in a manual review queue so that the ICO can determine do you want to work with them or not. Um, because yes, it makes sense you want as many contributors as possible, but it also makes sense to block people who are going to be bad news and you're going to spend 50 times more trying to defend their contribution than just rejecting them outright. Yeah, it's not going to be worth it for the minority that uh, you know that you'll have trouble with. It makes sense. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, any other areas that you see that are going to be super important, you know, over the next six months or a year that you guys are working to address? Um, so right now we're still focusing on ICOs because we think that's where 
And that's where it's getting really exciting, both the, the amount of dollars raised as well as the money laundering risk. Um, now, we just came back from uh, Money 2020, which is like a big financial conference where they had the former AUSA assistant U.S. attorney uh, who led the Silk Road takedown speak about ICOs. Uh, and her commentary was that, you know, every essentially every government is looking at this. Um, and while the U.S. has taken some action, right, they had uh, the SEC produce their Dow report. A lot of the other agencies don't know what's going on, uh, and it'll take a little bit of time for them to catch up. They've got, I mean, these are people who are, you know, don't even understand Bitcoin yet, much less Ethereum, much less, you know, what an ICO is and how it works. Um, our comment was they will catch up, and as they do, it becomes more and more important for companies to know the regulation that applies to them and to follow it. Um, so they don't get in trouble because the government, as they saw with the Ripple case, they always like to set a you know a good few examples to scare everyone else. And so they are likely right now kind of choosing who their targets are to see who they're going to go after uh, with the idea that if you go after one, you kind of scare the rest into following the rules or laws that they should be following up front. So how can um, interested people get in contact with identity minds you know, that need help with, with AML and KYC? What's the best way to reach you guys? Uh, we have a website, identitymind.com uh, or identitymindglobal.com. And on the site, you can learn kind of all the stuff we're doing related to AML, you know, know your customer, transaction monitoring, but also ICO stuff. Um, within our ICO stuff, we actually have a listing that's just kind of fun of all the different countries that have regulation. So you can kind of see, okay, you know, what is, what's going on in Singapore and what's going on in the UK for the FCA. So it kind of gives you an idea of the different countries and who has regulation. Like most people don't realize Brazil has regulation applicable to ICOs. So if you have contributors there, you need to follow that regulation. Um, and hopefully it makes sense to everyone that you have to follow the regulation of both the contributor country and the country you're headquartered. Uh, an example I always give here is, while it might be legal to sell guns to someone in the U.S. by mail, you can't ship it to a country that doesn't allow guns and say, well, it's okay here. Same thing applies. You can't follow the U.S. laws and ignore the laws of the the contributor just because you're follow, you're in the U.S. Gotcha. Okay, well, very good. Well, Neil, it's interesting the stuff you guys are working on, and uh, you know, it's a very necessary service, and I appreciate you taking time. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16, 17, and 18 in 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Blockchain Super Conference. Go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today as a super early bird to get the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.